This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Off the top uh, here today, phone records. This is another one we've been hearing all about. Phone records and intercepted calls reveal that members of the 2016 Trump campaign and other associates with the now president had contacts with Russian officials in the year leading up to the election. This comes after the National Security Advisor Michael Flynn stepped down yesterday. Or is it Joe Flynn? I can never keep the names of these government officials in the United States straight. Is it Joe, Joe Flynn or is it, or is it Michael Flynn? The joke is that, of course, you know, um, Sean Spicer called our Prime Minister Joe a couple of days ago. So uh, if you're not getting it, there it is. All right, let's go to the phones and uh, welcome Dr. Anthony Neal, who's uh, in the Department of Political Science at Buffalo State College. Dr. Neal, thanks for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here. All right, so yeah, no problem. This uh, this Trump uh, this this is the first really, uh, I guess, serious scandal. I mean, there's been a lot of you know finger pointing and laughing and guffawing behind Trump's back uh, about you know the various dumb things. Uh, that his administration has has said and and done in the first month of their administration. This is a little more serious. You've got your national security advisor Michael Flynn stepping down yesterday amid allegations that he was a little too cozy, and maybe other officials were a little too cozy with Russian intelligence folks. What does all this mean? Well, I think I agree with you that it is a major scandal. The unfortunate part is that uh, many people are trying to carry on with business as usual as as if it's no big deal and uh, we should move on and forget about it. But I think uh, the parallels to uh, Watergate are extremely uh, relevant, and I think the investigation should continue. Is the problem, uh, Dr. Neal, that... uh Nobody remembers Watergate. You know, I mean, I know people do remember it, but that, you know, that was a couple of generations ago. Do people really remember it and remember what it was about? It was a couple of generations ago, but as we recall, like down uh, here in in the States, every time there's a scandal, we attach a gate to it. There's this type gate or that type gate. And finally, I think we have a scandal that rises to the magnitude of not Iran Gate, but in Watergate. And uh, I think people are aware as to what happened in Watergate because it has never really gone away because every time something happens, we tend to refer back to it. But I think this is a, a good analogy as to what's happening now, though. It, it looks as though, um, you know, the, the information that's coming out, uh, you've got a whole bunch of people denying allegations. You've got those that would want to see President Trump impeached jumping in there at the first opportunity to get attraction on anything, um, going for the throat, um, it gets it can get pretty chaotic and tough to disseminate information uh, in a situation like this early on. Would you agree with that? I agree to a certain extent, but to those who are jumping in, you know, going straight for the president immediately, it's probably... Uh in reaction to the president himself. He hasn't done a great deal to make a lot of friends uh, in Washington and with the bureaucracy and with the intelligence agencies, basically coming in, criticizing everybody and essentially offending everyone. And it was only a matter of time before that would come back to haunt me, I believe. Well, isn't this the problem with having a narcissist crackpot 
um, in the president's office. You you you've got somebody who displays all of those uh, traits and characteristics with all of that power, and you've got uh, you've got a situation like this. It's it. I hope that. The people of the United States and the people of the world are starting to learn very quickly you, that you cannot have somebody like this guy in the chair. And this is this already, you know, when was the last time something like this happened inside of 30 days of an administration's uh, inauguration? Now, I think we're breaking records every day. Yes, yeah, I, uh, I think so, too. <laughs> I, 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 in my opinion, I think. A lot of people, many people, saw this coming a long time ago. That is why there is such opposition uh, to uh, Trump winning the presidency. I believe people actually predict something like this will happen. It's just unfortunately you had those 70,000 votes or so that went his way in the Electoral College, and now we are seeing the results of that. Unfortunately, the statistics still say about 90% of his uh, Republican supporters still support him, even in the midst of all this. But I guess that's not surprising. It took Nixon uh, from the time the Watergate first, you know, the break-in first occurred from that moment till he actually resigned. It was about a two-year period. So these initial stages, I don't find his support uh, being strong as a surprise. But for those who are looking at it from a more objective uh, point of view, I believe they are very concerned, you know, about the presidency, about the nation, about our relationships with uh, Canada, for example. Your prime minister is here. I think that visit was essentially overshadowed by the crisis that's going on today. Netanyahu is in the United States. I think that will be overshadowed as well by the crisis. So. A lot is not being uh, addressed because of this this crisis situation. Well, and, and again, it, it adds to the overall uh, confusion of matters and the fact that this is uh, the United States of America we're talking about here. And, and a lot of nations of the world look to the United States for a strong leadership, whether they agree with the political background of that leadership or not. They still look towards... You know the United States and Canada as free nations to to lead um, on, on things, and when you've got the confidence, uh, you know, shaken uh, by a president who is clearly insane, um, that that's a bad, bad thing. Not only for the United States, but for the rest of the world. There's no confidence there. I guess is what I'm trying to say, Doctor Neil. Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, that's it's 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 almost like to use another analogy like the situation comedy whenever you see a good situation comedy you know the what makes it makes it work you know how the character is going to respond in any given situation and in this situation knowing the history of trump you know he's not going to come forward you know he's not going to apologize you know he's not going to be forthright so he's only going to continue to attack those who are trying to uncover the truth and this makes it worse, and because people know this, this is his, his demeanor, we don't see any hope in sight. I guess I think a lot of people who are not political science professors like yourself or, um, 
you know, media observers who, you know, absorb reports by the dozens and then go and host talk shows like I'm doing or or anchor newscasts or report from locations, whatever. The the average person out there, I think, is really sitting back right now asking themselves two questions. One, how in the world could this have happened? Number one. And number two, how soon can they get this guy out of office and how can they do it? You got any answers to any of those questions? Well, how it, how it happened was really during the campaign and in all honesty, the Obama presidency did uh, tell people about the DNC hacks and what have you, but nobody believed it. So Right. So enthralled with Trump at the time, we really no one paid it any attention, essentially brushed it to the side as trying maybe trying to meddle in the campaign or what have you. So that's essentially how it happened. We were warned. We were absolutely told, but no one really paid attention. And now a lot of people are wondering, how can it end? Just make it stop. Uh, I believe one way for it to stop and could possibly happen uh, would be for the president to resign. And I think if the information keeps rolling out the way it has rolled out, and if you can't make peace with his intelligence community, uh, there's no way for him to go except out and to resign uh, and let us move on. I don't think the investigation should stop uh, in the event that he should resign, but I do believe that that would bring a certain amount of stability so that regular business can be conducted. I, you know, there are all kinds of conspiracy theorists out there and theories uh, to go with those theorists. Um, and that's often what happens when you've got so many, um, you know, demonstrable untruths being told on a daily basis by the administration. It gives rise to this kind of thing. Those conspiracy theorists are saying things like this was always the plan, um, that Trump was a puppet in the front. And that the plan was always to, you know, he would go in there and that Pence would eventually become the president of the United States soon after. Have you heard those ones? Uh, I haven't heard that one. I don't necessarily see that as being the case. But what I what I do believe is I do believe that the president, in in admission of his own words, has this uh, certain affinity toward Russia. And I think that's at the crux of the problem, trying to see what was that affinity based on? Uh, How did it come about? Why you can criticize everybody in the world except uh, the leaders of Russia? And that's a very, very strange demeanor for a president coming in to essentially blame your own intelligence uh, services and say that you're essentially saying you'd rather listen to Russian intelligence than American intelligence. Yeah, and I suspect that maybe, and I guess a psychiatrist would have to study this one. That it's it's a more of a a product or a byproduct of uh, two personalities, perhaps that that see things in a similar way, having sort of a mutual respect for one another, although they don't, um, they may not agree, obviously, on direction or policy on on everything. But they're two of the same kinds of of sinister minds. I I think I. Th- that's that's what I think anyway. I don't know what your thoughts are about the 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 affection or the the connection between Trump and and Putin. Well, it, it started some uh, quite some time ago. It was simply we know that uh, Trump's 
political career, his political career came about based on his criticism of the last president, President Obama. And aside from the birth certificate issue, there's always the, the calling of Obama as a weak leader and Putin as a strong leader. That's essentially where it, it started to surface uh, in that respect. But what I find so ironic is that many of his Republican colleagues said the same thing. It's only now that they're trying to distance themselves from that and show uh, show a little more disdain for Putin than they did at the time. They were saying Putin is a much better leader uh, than Obama. So, well, what where does the FBI go from here? Um, what 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 happens from here? I mean, let's do a little crystal ball gazing, Doctor Neil. Where where do you see this this thing headed? Does it does it snowball or does it fizzle? This this scandal. I, I, in all honesty, I think snowball is going to be a, an understatement of what's going to come forward okay. out of this situation. You have so much distrust on, on a lot of different fronts. Democrats really don't trust Comey based on what he did during the uh, campaign and the releasing of letters regarding Hillary Clinton's emails. And the fact that the FBI was essentially sitting on a lot of this information all the time and not saying anything about it also brings about some amount of distrust in that respect. You have Pence as vice president. Who's he going to trust now in the administration when he believes he was kept in, you know, in the dark and even put on national television to defend a lie, not knowing that it was a lie. Yeah. And everyone around him knew it was a lie. So, it, I, I think snowball is going to be an understatement based okay. on this situation. All right. Yeah, it's one thing for uh, Trump himself to tell a lie, but when he's got to go out and eat crow or, or try to cover up for somebody else's lies, that that's bruising his ego. He, you know, it's almost like, hey, I'll lie, I'm the liar here. Like, don't anybody, like, you know, if it's not coming through me, don't make embarrass me. It's a joke. Um, Dr. Anthony Neal, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College, thanks for uh, spending some time with us here this afternoon. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Well, you've been hearing it in the news. The European Parliament has uh, approved the Canada-EU trade deal today after long debate. What does it mean uh, for Canadians going forward to uh, talk about it? Is our guest Patrick LeBlond, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, uh, how are things in the nation's capital today? Uh, under the snow. We've just had another snowfall. Better you than us. <laughs> Better you than us. We don't get winter down here in the southern part of the province anymore. I just Well, wanted... good for you, because uh, we've probably had somewhere close to 60 centimeters in the last uh, few days. So, uh, but, you know, it's pretty and white. So. Yeah, I, th- I kind of thought you'd have an answer like that. I remember th- <laughs> I remember those Ottawa winters when I when I lived there as a kid, and uh, yeah, they were, uh, they're serious, that's for sure. Uh, this is a good day today. Would you not uh, agree a uh, good day for Canada, especially in the uh, in the face of uh, a lot of uh, anti-trade uh, sentiment that's that's out there, uh, particularly south of the 49th these days. Is a good deal for Canada, you think? 
I think it is. I think it's a good day. The fact that uh, finally uh, the uh, well, we're almost there. The uh, the, the European Parliament, uh, as it was expected, let's at least in this case there was no drama. Uh, they uh, they ratified the uh, the uh, comprehensive and economic and trade agreement uh, between Canada and the European Union, which means that now uh, the the Canadian Parliament has to uh, look at this and 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 also support it. Although technically the uh, the cabinet could could go ahead without necessarily a vote in. Uh, in Parliament, but uh, I think for democratic uh, reasons, there um, the, the Parliament will have its say. But the, now, basically, we're we're looking forward to the agreement coming into force sometime, I guess, around the summer. And uh, right uh, from then, well, uh, Canadian firms uh, will be able to uh, to deal with Europe uh, without any tariffs on uh, something like 97, 98 percent of all goods that are traded between uh, the two regions. So, so just that immediately will be uh, will be good news. Right, and and timing, I suppose, uh, is everything. I mentioned, uh, you, you know, anti-trade. At least we'll call it rhetoric uh, from the Trump uh, administration uh, in the United States. Uh, th- the timing of this is 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 pretty good, is it not? I mean, we we don't really know from day to day whether Trump is, you know, uh, meaning what he is saying. He met with our prime minister on Monday, our prime minister Joe Trudeau, and uh, he he's, you know, he he kind of he 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 wasn't coming hard at that. It was it, it was almost he was almost signaling the opposite to what he said in the past. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was a. I guess to some extent surprising, given the the rhetoric, as you mentioned, uh, that we've heard from Mr. Trump and, and his administration. Uh, I mean, clearly uh, at the press conference uh, between uh, Trudeau and Trump, uh, the, it was you know Trump made it clear that the the problems were you know on on the southern border, not on the northern border. Uh, and and uh, ultimately, we'll have to see what actually that means because uh, the the issue, at least the way I see it, is that. You know, NAFTA is a is a trilateral deal, right? It's a three-way deal, mm-hmm. and 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 clearly, what the the Americans seem to to want to do is to have uh, bilater- bilateral approaches with Canada and then bilateral approaches. Uh, with Mexico, and they said, "Well, we'll tweak NAFTA for the Canadians, but we're going to come down hard on the Mexicans." Uh, so, but how do we reconcile that within one agreement that is supposed to, you know, deal with all three countries? So, uh, does that mean that uh, we're 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 going to kind of uh, implode uh, NAFTA to to go back to you know bilateral free trade agreements? We're going to revive and modernize our, our Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, and then uh, the U.S. And, and Mexico will will negotiate. I'm not sure what kind of free trade they would negotiate since uh, Trump doesn't seem to want any free trade with the Mexicans. Yeah, just a uh, wall. But, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit hard to, to understand exactly what that means. Uh, and, you know, it, what it really feels like is that the Canadians kind of threw the Mexicans under the bus uh, and say, well, you know, we're going to protect ourselves, which, you know, from the government's perspective, that's what you want to do. Uh, but certainly uh, we, 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 we didn't do any favors to, to our Mexican uh, colleagues uh, by, you know, kind of trying to protect uh, our views and, and, and our interests and kind of saying, well, you know, we're, we're good people, right? We, 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 we have the same kind of problems. We have the same costs. Uh, so, you know, let's continue doing business, and then, you know, you do whatever you want with, with the Mexicans. Uh, so I, I don't know how that's going to go. The fear, of course, is that Trump would, would, would not 
make any differentiation between the southern and northern border and then would just kind of I- impose uh, tariffs uh, on both sides, which uh, certainly would have a, a very negative impact on, on, on Canadian businesses doing uh, exporting to, to the U.S. But there's still the chance, and, and, and that's something that you know, was not mentioned on Monday, that Congress, you know, they're talking about this so-called border adjustment tax, which you know, basically is, 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 is a kind of tax that uh, penalizes imports, uh, applies to imports, but has, has no, no implication on, on exports. So basically, we, we tax companies that import, uh, but we don't tax companies that export. Uh, and and if, if that were to go on as part of this kind of tax reform that, that, that Congress and Paul Ryan want to do, uh, this would apply to basically all imports coming mm-hmm. into the U.S., uh, you know, and, and of course, would be a breach of, of NAFTA and, and World Trade Organization rules. Uh, but so we don't know. That's still going on. So uh, yes, it was nice to hear uh, Mr. Trump uh, say that you know he he, he thinks the, the the Canada-U.S. relation is an important one, is a good one, and we're going to tweak uh, NAFTA and uh, then you know kind of complain about the the Mexicans. But going forward, as you say, we don't know. So to go back to the uh, the CETA, the agreement with the European Union, certainly it, 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 it's a good thing, I think, for, for Canada to have that kind of in the bag right now, even though there's still the issue of uh, national parliaments in Europe ratifying the agreement so that, you know, about 5% of, of the agreement uh, comes into force later on. But, you know, for now, we'll, we'll have about 95% of the agreement come into force. So, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going to have uh, access also to the second second or first uh, economy in the world. If you think of the European Union as Absolutely, a whole, yes. uh, as long as the UK is in it, maybe once the UK is out, we'll, we'll be the second largest economy. But you know, Canada is going to really well placed, assuming we can maintain our access to the US. We're, we're going to have this, this, you know, basically the only developed country that's going to have this kind of access to, 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 to Europe. And in, in a context where, in fact, the US has, has, has pretty much killed its own negotiations with the European Union. Yeah. So, you know, that might be an, an attractive factor, assuming we can keep the, the, the access to, to the U.S. market. Yeah, and kind you know, of... European companies will be able to come in, 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 in Canada and say, well, look, you know, you, 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 you can uh, base yourselves here and, and uh, have access to, to both markets. Well, I was just going to say, Canada is now, uh, you know, will be able to merchandise itself as the, the, the open uh, a country in North America uh, to do trade with. Uh, it's a very attractive thing for for the European Union to, to look over the ocean and see us here, right, with the doors wide open. No, I think so. And, and, and certainly, I mean, the, the, the Europeans got a scare in, in, in October, right, when the, the Walloons blocked the, the, uh, the, the signing of CETA uh, by the, the European Union. And, and, and then it really kind of put into question the whole the, the, Euro, the European Union's trade policy, uh, because if, if one regional parliament can block the entire process, well, what does that mean for Europe's uh, ability to continue trading? For instance, even with Brexit, right? Does that mean that the Walloons or, or some, you know, some regional parliament similar to that could actually block uh, any trade agreement between the European Union and, and the UK once it, it leaves the European Union? So it kind of threw a whole wrench uh, into this issue. Now it seems that at least temporarily 
it's it's been resolved. We'll have to see going forward what that means. But uh, for the Europeans, I think they, they also need that agreement uh, not only to to keep the doors open, especially if 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 the the, the U.S. becomes more protectionist, uh, to to kind of uh, you know more globally say, well, you know, we 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 are a few places in the world that that kind of want to trade with each other, and if the Americans don't want to play ball, well, we're going to do it on our own. You know, we're mm-hmm. not. The, the worst that could happen is if everyone kind of turns inwards, raises the trade barriers, and, and then we have these trade wars, and then we're basically going to be back to the All 1930s. Right. Okay. And certainly no one wants that. No. Uh, Patrick LeBlanc is, is my guest. He's an associate professor uh, the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, where they're buried in snow today. Patrick, um, for, the, for the average person listening who doesn't understand trade agreements and what it really means uh, to the guy on the street in terms of the economics of it and the, and the benefits of it, let's take let's let's go through that um what does a deal like this do for the average working person in canada well, for the average working person, it could, it, it, you know, one, one clear example, it could mean that uh, the cars that, that we buy from Europe will be slightly cheaper uh, because the tariffs will be uh, eliminated on that. Uh, it could help even car manufacturing here uh, to the extent that uh, we want to import, let's say, um, uh, car uh, parts, auto parts mm-hmm. uh, from Europe. You know, if it's very specialized auto parts that would be developed by a company, you know, it's kind of high technology that we would like uh, that you no, know, I don't know GM or Honda or or, or you know the the Ford that that have operations in Canada would want to put in their cars that that we fabricate here. Uh, so that's one example. If we think out, out, out east uh, in the Atlantic provinces, the the deal is now going to make it a lot easier uh, for them to sell their seafood and and you know and, and other uh, fish products right. uh, to Europe. So that's going to be a big boon for for that industry that you know, certainly has been developing in in in, in the last decades. Uh, so that that's going to make the access to the European markets much cheaper, much easier. Uh, beef and pork. Uh, if we go for the west uh, and some extent in Quebec, uh, also the, uh, the 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 quotas that uh, have been that uh, the, 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 the beef and pork industry uh, I've seen in terms of being able to export uh, their um, their products to uh, to the European Union kind of tariff free uh, have been increased quite substantially. So as long as they can meet the uh, sanitary re- requirements, they they have now a much bigger access uh, to sell their uh, their meat uh, in Europe. So, you know, these are just examples. Engineering companies will be, uh, and other uh, professional uh, services companies will, will have an easier time doing business in Europe uh, because uh, the, there's going to be a recognition of professional certification, the ability for for, for, for uh, consultants, professionals, etc., to spend more time in Europe as a result of this deal. Uh, public procurement. So uh, now as a result of the agreement, well, in exchange for us providing uh, European firms greater access to our public procurement uh, sector, so you know all the spending that governments do from the municipal level up to the, the federal level, uh, we're going to have the same access. Uh, and, and in Europe, it's actually even better because it's actually centralized. Like you can find that information on one website uh, for all the, the 27 countries. So, you know, even for potentially uh, small, medium-sized businesses, now they, 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 they could bid on, on, on your 
European contracts where before that was not possible. Uh, so you know there, there are a number of sectors like that where uh, it's 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 it's, it's going to make it easier. Uh, it would probably mean you know, I would expect that uh, European firms are going to look uh, much more to Canada and increase uh, their investments in Canada. As mm-hmm. we said, you know Canada is, is kind of the the the, the, the North American uh, open market. Uh, eventually, if we were to do uh, free trade deals with Japan, with China, uh, it would position position us even better. You know, we'd kind of be this platform in between Asia and Europe. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll have to see. But I think you know, generally, it should mean uh, lower lower prices for for Canadian consumers. Uh, it should mean uh, more uh, business uh, for Canadian firms, both here and and in Europe. Uh, even while you know, for for the dairy producers, it, they see this as, as something less good. But technically. Uh, um, uh, cheese producers in Europe will now be able to export more cheese uh, tariff-free to Canadians. So hopefully that will mean either uh, more choices uh, and maybe lower prices. So for those those Canadians who like uh, European cheeses, uh, they they should benefit. Who doesn't like European cheeses? (laughs) I mean, come on. It's absolutely what a huge that there it is right there. I mean, if we're going to cut to the bottom line, it's European cheese will be uh, cheaper and more accessible, and uh, that makes a lot of people a lot of people happy. Uh, Patrick, uh, last question here: Is, is there any uh, wrench that could get into this thing? Any fly that could get into the ointment uh, on this thing to um, to delay it or um, or or you know make it not happen? Uh, at this point, I, I don't see that. Uh, certainly, the, the the federal government here is is fully committed to this agreement. I think uh, the fact that the Prime Minister Trudeau flew to Strasbourg to uh, to for the, uh, the the ratification, I think again it, it demonstrates how much Canada uh, wants this deal, how much it supports it. Uh, so I think you know it's just a matter of formality before it's it's ratified by by the Canadian government. Once that's done, which I assume will be in the, in the coming weeks, uh, the agreement will come into force. Maybe. You know, on the first of July, something like that, uh, and then, as I said, there, there's the, the one kind of small question mark is uh, whether the, 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 all the national parliaments uh, in in the, in the EU will vote and ratify. Uh, the agreement until they have not ratified there are some elements of 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 the agreement that cannot come into force uh, because they're considered of national competence uh, so that that's that's one aspect the other aspect that could potentially uh, affect us is, is on the implement the, the what I call the implementation side uh, because the uh, a big aspect of CETA is on regulatory cooperation so cooperation in terms of rules in terms of regulations in terms of standards in terms of even administrative processes you know, to kind of simplify the job for businesses, these so-called transaction costs uh, that business often face, you know, where they have to go through all these hoops to get things approved, certified, etc. There's a, the, 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 the agreement really wants to streamline these things and, and, and empower both uh, Canadian governments and, and, and EU governments to work together to try to, you know, render these things more seamless. Like, for instance, if you have your product approved uh, for the Canadian market, can you also have it approved in the same go uh, for the European market? Get both certifications. That would be, you know, that would mean a lot of of, of money saved for small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, but those things require cooperation. They require, from the moment that the agreement is enforced, it requires governments and and civil servants to actually and to to sit down to work together on both sides of the Atlantic to work together between the federal and the provincial governments here, and then to work together with the business community to make sure that that these things are ha- happen and that these what we call these beyond the border barriers. Are 
are, are not necessarily going to be completely eliminated. We're not going to talk about, you know, full harmonization. But, you know, if a product is good enough for, for Canadians, can it be good enough for Europeans and vice versa? You know, that, that, this kind of mutual recognition uh, that, that, that we should strive for so that businesses don't have to change uh, their products and, and, and their manufacturing uh, sure. or, or other types like this just to suit kind of different markets. Yep. Patrick LeBlond, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Uh, really appreciate your insight in, into this, and uh, we'll have you back on soon, I'm sure. Thanks very much for the time today. To Thank All you right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Accused killer Elizabeth Wetlaufer was fired from a nursing home for, quote, a medication error that put the life of a resident at risk. However, she continued to work as a nurse, uh, according to uh, documents. Uh, This is... um, this is a story about, I, I think, about how somebody could carry on and, and be doing uh, uh, things uh, sort of uh, with, without any uh, kind of um, watchful eye uh, on her. And it's, and it's raised a lot of fear and a lot of concern about uh, the level of care and about whether we're taking our eye, I think, off the, off the ball when it comes to uh, some of our most vulnerable citizens and in uh, long-term care facilities or nursing homes uh, across our, our province. Jane Metis is a staff lawyer and institutional advocate with the Advocacy Center for the Elderly. They're a, a community legal clinic uh, in Toronto. Jane, thanks for the time today. Well, thank you for having me, Jane. This is a disturbing story, obviously, uh, from a number of, number of angles. Um, it, it's, it, it's always the same thing, though. When we hear about this stuff, we start to think, okay, where are the checks and balances uh, where did communication uh, fall down? How did how did this kind of happen? How did she slip through the cracks? Mm-hmm. So I, there's a lot of questions there, Jane. But uh, you're a lawyer, so you're used to that. Where do you want to jump in on that one? Well, I, I think you're right, and I think this is a very complicated story because we're not only dealing with someone who was accused of some, you know, of, of, of murdering. Uh, residents attempting to murder other residents. We're also looking at a story where it was not caught by the system. Um, we're looking at a story that has other elements of potential malpractice to them, such as the one that got her uh, fired from her initial home. We don't know exactly how she left her other positions. Uh, I think most of it we've been looking at how she left the first home. Um, and so there's all these different things in play that make it much more complicated. If it was just one or the other, you know, it would be easier. But, of course, ne- life's never easy. Mm-hmm, no. So, you know, we're really looking at a whole bunch of different problems. Now, you know, the fact, for example, that someone has made a medication error, that is not altogether uncommon in long-term care. Right. That home was cited after this came to light. They cited 41 medication errors within that home in a very short period of time, which post-dated Ms. Wetlaufer's employment there. So that home was having issues. Now, when people are, um, when nurses or, or whomever are found to have made medication errors, I don't think that the first thing that they do is fire someone. Generally, the home, you know, will look to see if it's a, 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 you know, what the error was, how it could have been fixed. 
Um, was it, uh, you know, something that they did just made an error, which, you know, we yeah, all do. Yeah, human beings are human yeah. beings, sure. Uh, um, or was it something something more? And the fact that she was fired for a medication error um, and then and reported to the college really makes one think that there was something else behind it. And, of course, with a lot of the media, there have been suggestions that there were other things behind it. Um, so the question becomes, you know, what information went to the college? Was it the correct information? And what did they do about it? Because certainly there has been nothing reported on the nursing, on the, on the college's website. So if you go in to see what's happened with Ms. Wetlover, it's all since sort of that September uh, when she gave up her license and then post that. So there's nothing relating to these uh, this earlier allegation of, around the medication. Is that a problem for you as, as somebody that, uh, uh, you know, understands the law? Uh, is there enough transparency when it comes to uh, a professional college like the College of Nurses of Ontario, mm-hmm. since we're talking about this particular example? Or, or, or are, there, are there questions about uh, whether there's just a general communication breakdown and a, and a lack of... Um, I don't know what you would call it, a lack of focus on these things when they come to the attention of a college. Well, and, and, and it's sort of hard to know because we are, you know, we aren't sure what was told to them. We're not sure exactly what the college did. Did they file the paper away? I think this has been an ongoing issue with respect to the colleges as to whether or not they are transparent enough. Um, you know, in a case like this, uh, presuming that they did investigate, they could have found, maybe not been able to find anything, or they could have entered into some court, sort of a mediation process um, if there was anyone else involved. Now, we don't know if the family of the the person who had been over-medicated was ever involved and whether they were ever given an opportunity to, to complain or be part of the process, um, which is a problem, right? So if the home is just doing it, you know, the family should be also advise that they have a right to do that because that would have brought them in and brought their perspective in as well. Sure. Um, and, and often when these things that are reported by homes, to whether it's to the ministry or to colleges or what have you, um, the family or the, even the resident, if they're competent, are left out of the process. And, and one of the things that we're often doing is trying to make sure that the, the family, the resident, uh, knows that they also have a right to go. And if they don't make the complaint themselves, uh, they may not get any information, so we always encourage that. Because what could have happened here is that it, you know they made some sort of a determination. They could have just counseled her, um, and nothing would appear on her record. Um, and that's always been a, a big issue with the colleges. Uh, how do you balance the rights of the of the staff um, who can be, you know, or for the nurses who can make mistakes um, versus that, that public interest. And I think that when we're talking about long-term care, when we're talking about a case like this, I think it is really important for us to know what the history was um, and how we can change those things to make it better. Were there signs? Yeah. I, I, I wonder, too, if we need to do a, a, a better job of, uh, of these, as you say, educating uh, family members mm-hmm. of, of uh, people that are in long-term care about um, the questions that they have a right to ask and the questions that they should be asking, not with always with the idea that we're out to get anybody, but just uh, being able to stay on top of things. Because as we know, 
uh, these are often, uh, you know, some of our most vulnerable citizens. Yeah. Um, they may be uh, people with um, uh, dementia or Alzheimer's or other, uh, you know, uh, deficits uh, that can't communicate as well uh, as they once could. Um, they're also putting a lot of trust, both the uh, the resident and uh, and the family, in the people that are providing care on a 24-hour-a-day basis. Um, I wonder if we shouldn't be... Uh, you know, doing a better job of, of communicating that or, or the college itself shouldn't be doing a better job of communicating that. And I agree. And, and we have uh, published, um, you know, there's residence rights in long-term care home and we've published information in that pamphlet on how to make complaints to various people. And, uh, you know, it may need an update now on about complaining about things like complaining to nursing, college of nurses and things like that. And some residents and their families in long-term care homes would get those. Um, but the problem is, too, that even, you know, you, we could provide all that information. I was recently talking to the coroner's office and suggesting that they should be uh, having postings in homes saying that if your, you know, family member dies and you're concerned, you can always call the coroner because people don't know their right to do that. But I also worry about the large number of people in long-term care who have no one who's watching out for them. Right, Maybe yes. the public garden trustee is making decisions for them. In a lot of cases, they probably have no one making decisions for them, although that's illegal in Ontario, but often the homes don't bother contacting the public guardian and trustee. But their job would be to make a decision not to follow up on these things. That's not what they would be doing. So we have this whole population out there of people who have no one to even speak up for them. And that is a, you know, they're very vulnerable. That's a huge uh, uh, issue and, a, and, a, and an incredibly important point uh, that you're raising there, which, which ties to a, a larger, perhaps societal or cultural um, uh, problem that we have in that I think uh, in a lot of cases we view uh, long-term care facilities as a way of washing our hands of uh, people that we don't really uh, have time to care for because we're too busy trying to take care of uh, our, our children that have moved back home, for example, or or our own issues. And I, I, I sometimes get the sense that, you know, these long-term care facilities uh, – you know, they're, they're housing people who are waiting to exit, mm-hmm. and that's how people view it. That's kind of a harsh kind of um, point of view to take, but I think that that's going on in, in a lot of cases, and it's sad. And, I, and to your point, I don't think that's going to get any, that's going to get any easier if we don't uh, get some intervention going pretty quickly because we've got a rapidly aging baby boomer population, right? And those places are going to be bursting yeah. at the seams in the next uh, 20 years or Absolutely. so. Absolutely. And we have a huge problem coming up, not only with the baby boomers, but with redevelopment. Um, there is no plan as where these people are going to be going, so we're going to have a problem with that. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we really need to look at, um, you know, do we need... Um, you know, uh, volunteer advocates or paid advocates would be better to be going in. In some places in the United States, they have paid advocates or volunteer advocate systems who go in and have hours and they speak to people and, and, and they must go into the homes all the time. And there are different things that could happen. Um, I mean, in this, you know, and the other thing is that people, 
you know, we talk about deinstitutionalization. We close down all of the, you know, big uh, places for people with developmental disabilities. They close the psych facilities. You know, we don't have these anymore. Well, no, we do. They're all in long-term care now. Uh, so you not only have the aging population and the people with dementia, you also have younger people as well. Um, so we're just lumping all of them together, and that creates a real problem because the care can't be the same for everyone, um, but they're not really properly trained for that. Um, and I think, I mean, I think this case, what the answer is, you know, I think we're only going to find out all the bits and pieces from this is, is if we have a public inquiry. And I think that's really what we need. We need to be looking at, you know, what, what did the home do? What should it have done? Um, you know, what did the coroner do? What should they have done? What did the college do? What should it have done? And really the only way to get that is through a public inquiry. It's always sad, uh, but it's always, it seems to always be the case. It's always, it's always sad when, you know, somebody has to, is injured or uh, dies uh, and then the attention is focused and then we go in and have to, to uh, sort things through. Um, it's a system that in so many levels uh, doesn't, doesn't work well, but uh, you, you obviously, Jane, uh, have a passion for this, and, and uh, uh, you're going to keep at it, I would imagine. I am, and, and you know, and uh, certainly, you know, colleagues of mine who work in the industry say that I'm, you know, only negative. I complain about things, and I say, well, people certainly don't call me when things are good, mm-hmm. um, but I think that, um, you know, we have a system where we are... Um, often letting the this, this system sort of police itself. Yes, we have ministry and things going in occasionally, but a lot of the information that comes out has to come out through people. And so if we don't have people who can speak up for themselves, and many can't, or if they don't have families involved enough, or who understand what they can speak about, people don't know what the rules are. Um, you know, it creates a, a system that, you know, if someone gets in there who has less than... Um, good intentions, they, you know, it's ripe for trouble. Yeah, and I, and again, I come back to uh, you know the, the the notion that we in in a lot of cases, I think we devalue um, the lives and the well being of of our senior vulnerable citizens because we just take a, a, a generalized approach. Well, they're in, they're in a long-term care facility. There's nurses there that look out them 24-7. We don't need to worry about them anymore. Mm-hmm. And, they've, and they've lived their life. And, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a really a terrible way to look at things. Well, and, and I think, too, that you know, it is um, very much there is not a good quality of life in long-term care. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we see you know, cases like we've recently seen in Hamilton, with people being assaulted and violence within residents, part of the issue is that residents are bored. Um, they're not stimulated. You know, these are places we, you know, they've, like you said, they've gone through their life. We don't really need to do anything. We'll throw a ball around a couple of times a week, and that's about it. There really isn't a quality of of um, life in many long-term care homes. It yeah. really is warehousing, and um, you know, it, that is a huge problem. And it certainly doesn't create a, uh, a place where people are likely to kind of want to go those extra miles. Yeah, and that isn't to um, uh, diminish uh, a lot of the fine work that uh, nurses are doing in, in those homes, um, uh, you know, therapists are doing in those homes uh, with people. There just isn't, I just don't think there's an, enough resources doing the right things to, as you point out, uh, create um, a quality of life that 
you know, we would all want uh, for ourselves at that stage of life. Absolutely. And there are many, many good homes. Um, and as, as you said, it's unfortunately the only times we really get a lot of media. And, you know, I can say this is going to happen if we don't fix something, um, but it's not until something happens that, you know, we get the media, which is the unfortunate part. I mean, but we have people living in long-term care um, who are much sicker, have much higher levels of dementia, need different levels of care. So the kind of day-to-day just sort of sit and have a, a chat with the resident and, and, you know, just do some, you know, sort of quality of life issues with them, that time is gone. They have to spend their entire time running from here to there to provide the minimal level of care that the people need because instead of having people who could, you know, use the bathroom and feed themselves and that, uh, they have such a higher proportion of people and the funding just hasn't kept up. Jane Midas uh, is a staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the uh, Advocacy Advocacy Centre for the Elderly uh, in Toronto. Uh, Thanks for uh, spending some time with us here this afternoon. I appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.